Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney Plus in season two of The Mandalorian. Witness the journey of The Mandalorian and the child as they face enemies, rally allies, and make their way through a dangerous galaxy in the tumultuous era after the collapse of the Galactic Empire. For your consideration in all categories, The Mandalorian is now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. How do you pace the crackling dialogue of an Aaron Sorkin film? We're here today on Crew Call with Oscar winner Aaron Sorkin and his editor, Alan Baumgarten, to talk about the trial of the Chicago 7. Aaron, uh, with everything that has been happening in the news recently, uh, with the insurrection at the Capitol, how uh, how has this movie resonated with you now? Boy, uh, you know, I've, I, I've been asked uh, in the run-up to the film, after the film uh, came out, uh, if the script changed at all to mirror events. And the answer is no, uh, that events changed to mirror the script. Uh, I, I started working on this 14 years ago. Uh, Steven Spielberg asked me to come over to his house on a Saturday morning, and he said he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7, and I said, that sounds great, count me in. And I left his house, and I called my father and asked him who the Chicago 7 were. Uh, so I had a, I had a lot of learning to do, and uh, I m- made it through about 12 terrific books, some of them written by the defendants, 21,000 page trial transcript, but most critically, I got to spend time with Tom Hayden. Uh, oh, great. And he's no longer alive, but uh, but he was then. And uh, then came the period where you're climbing the walls and uh, uh, tearing your hair out. And there's, it, it's it's too big a story. Uh, uh, you can't figure out uh, how to tell it, what comes first. Uh, and then it, in my head, it kind of organized itself into three stories that I'd tell at once. Uh, the courtroom drama, the evolution of the riot, how did what was supposed to be a peaceful protest evolve and de- devolve into such a violent clash with the police and law enforcement, and then the more personal story with Tom and Abby, two guys uh, who are on the same side but plainly can't stand each other. Each thinks the other is doing harm to the movement, but they, they come to respect each other. Uh, it, it began... Uh, as just for me, uh, as just a great story to tell, uh, uh, that, that there was a chance that this could be a, a terrific movie. Uh, and that's all you're looking for at the beginning is, is just sort of a good pitch to hit. Uh, and uh, it, the movie kept kind of getting kicked down the road for, for one reason or another. It wasn't getting made. Um, and then Donald Trump came into our lives. Uh, and here's where things suddenly became relevant. Uh, uh, that he would he would have rallies and there'd be a protester and he'd get nostalgic about the old days when we used to carry that guy out of here on a stretcher and I'd like to punch him right in the face and beat the crap out of him. Uh, the country was suddenly very polarized. Protest uh, was demonized. So we thought the film was plenty relevant when we were making it last winter. We didn't need it to get more relevant, uh, but it did, uh, obviously, 
in May when George Floyd was killed, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and there were protests uh, in the streets and in many cities those protests were met once again by tear gas and, uh, and, and nightsticks. And, you know, Alan and I thought, uh, gee, if we just, <laughs> watching CNN's coverage of the protests, if we just took that footage and degraded the color uh, a little bit, it would look exactly like the footage we were using uh, from 1968. All of this obviously was before last Wednesday, uh, uh, the 6th, when Donald Trump did exactly what the Chicago 7 were wrongly accused uh, of doing. The um, So my window into the trial of the Chicago 7 was, well, first, my it was covered in my history class back in the 80s, but my friends, uh, I grew up in southern Vermont. I hung around with a very liberal bunch, and one of them was reading Steal This Book. Uh-huh. And so that was my window into knowing about Abby Hoffman. And then, interestingly enough, before he died, one of my friends from this group was able to meet him in Northampton, Massachusetts, and gave him a pe- painting and everything. But I, all that aside, I was curious, what did what is Tom, you know, Abby had a very tragic end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I committed suicide. Yeah, he committed suicide. Abby also had undiagnosed um, bipolar disorder. Uh, so that I'm sure that contributed to the suicide. I was curious how Tom looked back at him, you know, after you, after you met up with Tom, was he, does he, did he still see him as, you know, both of them saw themselves as the guy, as guys that put words in the wrong places. Yeah. Um, it, it was this, this attitude toward Abby that I was detecting from Tom. Uh, whenever, whenever we'd meet, whenever we'd talk, that led me to want to tell this more personal story uh, between Tom and Abby. Um, that you couldn't escape the feeling uh, from Tom uh, that that Tom felt that uh, Abby had done some lasting damage uh, to the progressive movement, and that uh, when you learned about the Chicago Seven. Uh, in school, you probably learned more about Abby than Tom, or you're probably more turned on by Abby than Tom. Uh, he's the more colorful uh, a character. He got more camera time. Um, uh, and, you know, what What Hayden, uh, in, in some circles, to some people, what Hayden would become most famous for is being married to Jane Fonda for a time. It was, and then, and then they were all, they all eventually sold, you know, like I remember in the eighties, most of them, except for maybe Abby went on and, and they became yuppies. Uh, yeah, they did. You know, uh, Jerry Rubin became a stockbroker. He died tragically as well when he was hit by a car uh, crossing the street, jaywalking uh, in you near know, the campus of UCLA uh, in Westwood. Um, Bobby Seale, uh, to this day, uh, teaches community organizing uh, on college campuses. He's, he's taught at about 500 colleges. He also publishes books on barbecuing, uh, which is his hobby. Um, uh, but you're right. Uh, a, a lot of them, um, well, let's just say they made the transition from the 60s to the 80s. 
the the other thing um that i remembered was there was some sort of accusation correct me if i'm wrong about the poisoning of the of the water in chicago gee i don't I don't know anything about uh, uh, poison water in Chicago. Oh. I thought you were going to talk about well, when you said poison. I thought you were going to talk about uh, Fred Hampton. No, there. I thought this is that that there was some sort of accusation leveled against them that, or that they threatened, or Abby might have threatened that he was going to put um, he was going to put LSD. That's true. <laughs> that I remember. Yeah, but. Um, that sounds like the kind of thing <laughs> that sort of goes in the same category as Abby saying, give me a hundred thousand dollars and I'll call the whole thing off. Um, I, I, Abby was not going to put LSD in Chicago's water supply. <laughs> um, so uh, tell me about the pacing of this versus Alan, you yes. worked on Molly. First of all, Alan and, and Aaron, how did you both meet? You worked on Molly's game together, but how did how did how did the two of you meet? Alan, you want to try to explain this? Sure. Um, Aaron started off uh, on Molly's game and was working with Elliot Graham, a friend and colleague of mine. Well, before Who that, had yeah, edited Steve, Steve Jobs, Jobs, which is how I knew Elliot. And he had a previous commitment to work on another project, so he had a limited time window. He brought on an additional editor with him, uh, Josh Schaefer, and they started off and thought they could get pretty far along with Aaron and director's cut. But uh, that opening sequence took a while, as I was told. And I understand very much because, uh, you know, it's a fantastic sequence in Molly's game, the opening. Oh, it's great. So I, LA- another pep talk to my, to my younger son, who's, who's uh, uh, a baseball player. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, a, it's a good sports pep talk sequence. Yes. It's yeah. Great. Brilliant scene, and uh, Elliot crafted that, but had to move on to his other commitments. So he was looking for uh, someone to fill his shoes and come in on to Molly's game. And uh, my name was put forward. I got to meet with Aaron, and when I heard about it, I was, you know, excited as could be to to have that opportunity. And Aaron brought me on to join the team, and we, you know, continued to the end. Josh and I worked on Molly's game, and had a great time on that film. It was a great experience. When it was finished, I. Hoped that I would have a chance to work with Aaron again. And uh, when the opportunity arose to join him on the trial of the Chicago 7, I, I couldn't have been happier. Assembling Molly's game and assembling this movie. Obviously, this is a, this is a court case. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a historical look back. But could you talk, you know, from an editing perspective, what was, sure. what was the difference? Well, uh, the movies are very different, but there's an interesting uh, common ground and similarity that I might start by saying uh, the length of the film. When when I work on a film, sometimes the first cut is very long. In the case with Aaron's films, both on Molly's Game and The Trial of the Chicago 7, the editor's cut, the first cut of the film, is not that much longer than the final version that we end up with, which is remarkable. It's very uncommon. And that has to do with how tight the script is, how well paced the script is. A lot of the pacing that you're appreciating and referencing uh, comes from the script. And so though there are different films in, and it's the dialogue, it's the way Aaron's written the dialogue and structured the film uh, in in both cases, uh, in each case differently. But in Molly's game, there was a lot of voiceover and Jessica Chastain's voiceover was driving us. And that allowed us to have something to hang on to and to illustrate with uh, either montages or stock footage and keep scenes moving along with a, a framework that, that held it together and provided, you know, a lot of pace. And in 
Trial of the Chicago 7, it is the dialogue as well done differently, but there are flashbacks, as you know, and the courtroom, I would say, served not as voiceover, but that was sort of the structure that the film centered on. And we worked from the courtroom to illustrate what happened. And those um, structures of dialogue, really, and, and whether it's voiceover or a live dialogue between actors, moves in such a way uh, through Aaron's writing that guides us and leads the way really and has it creates a pace that I can follow and I have to say that working on an Aaron Sorkin script I feel like I have a head start right out of the gate uh, and very nice to say I would say um one of the the, the biggest challenges in Alan's editing suite uh it was going to be the two riot sequences yeah uh, uh the, the, a, a big reason why it, it took so long to get the film made why why it kept getting why the can getting kept getting kicked down the road uh were those two riot sequences they were budget busters uh you know a film like this has to fit into a budget that is proportional to what the studio thinks the audience appetite is uh for the film in other words there wasn't going to be a lot of money uh, uh to spend on the chicago seven and um every time we got to the riots the the, the movie became uh unmakeable uh then as i said trump happened uh and i had directed my first film molly's game steven spielberg was sufficiently pleased uh, by molly's game that he thought i should direct chicago seven and that the time to make it was now and the riots are your problem now um i don't, I don't care just you're gonna have to figure out how to do it um and what alan and our dp faden papa michael uh and i were able to do is first of all um we were able to shoot those scenes in grant park in chicago and uh, on michigan avenue where they took place so they were going to match the hours and hours and hours of stock footage that alan uh, uh would go through and uh because of the shot list that Faden and I were able to come up with and with Alan's help saying, you know, we're going to need this, we're going to need this. Um, Alan was able to weave these uh, uh, sequences um, that ended up being, you know, anytime you're doing something out of economic necessity uh, on a film, uh, you want it to end up looking like that's what you would have done if you'd had an unlimited uh, budget. And that's what Alan did. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney Plus and season two of The Mandalorian. Witness the journey of The Mandalorian and the child as they face enemies, rally allies, and make their way through a dangerous galaxy in the tumultuous era after the collapse of the Galactic Empire. For your consideration in all categories, The Mandalorian is now streaming only on Disney Plus. And what was it? What made those the the riot scene so pricey? Was it the the number of extras, or was there a CGI element in in replication of the crowd? It was going to be the number of extras, um, and the number of days it was going to take uh, uh, to do it. Usually, the big expense on a film is going to be time, uh, uh, the number of shooting days. Uh, so it was the number of people and and the number of days it was going to take uh, to get all those shots. But as I said, with this new plan that we came up with, um, where we did, by the way, we did do some crowd duplication uh, uh, in there. Uh, but it was a matter of getting just a few 
wide shots so we could sell it uh, uh, to the audience. Uh, and we were, not to be glib about this, but we were helped by the tear gas um, because there was a lot of smoke. We could right. kind of disguise things. And, um, and then we were going to get a lot of extremely tight shots of uh, just someone's eyes as a club uh, comes across blood spraying out a tear gas canister being you know loaded and and, and shot and we we're going to take the in-camera footage put it in alan's lap <laughs> alan had been you know all along uh, uh looking at the uh, uh at the file footage uh that we had and he was able to you know knit this fantastic tapestry we're right. Aaron. And we also uh did do cgi as aaron said but it was in the lead up to the riot and in the aftermath. In the first riot, we have some crowd duplication of our group approaching the statue and afterwards in the scene following the riot. The riot itself was a combination of entirely shot footage from production from Faden and Aaron on set mixed with our archival footage. There was no real crowd duplication within the battle itself. It was our footage and then some enhanced stock footage that's correct there's only crowd duplication when the crowd is standing still right i was curious aaron you know i i spoke with faden a lot on uh ford versus ferrari and i'm i'm thinking this was the first film he did after ford versus ferrari yeah that's right ford versus ferrari came out while we were doing the film and and i gotta think he he had to be in a race mindset (laughs) like how was it how was it i mean one of the great things about the movie I mean, is it's crack a lacking as far as pace goes. Like, there's a lot of dialogue, but it's this wonder. It's such a great. It's such a it has such a wonderful pace to it. And if both of you could talk about that, uh, sure. I'll let well, Alan talk well, in a second. Uh, but I'll, anytime yeah, you yeah. use the word pace, uh, you're talking about Alan. And, um, and I'll hand uh, it back to you, Aaron, because it's a it's a combination. I uh, appreciate that. It's the variety you offer of how the pace is achieved differently in different ways that keeps it exciting and interesting. You have intense volleys of dialogue just between two people back and forth, Tom and Abby going at it. And that's very exciting. Then you have intercuts of the courtroom back to the and back and forth, which is also very exciting. We can keep the pace going there. And then you have sometimes a longer scene in the courtroom, which hands off to the riot to a more extended piece of flashback. And within that flashback, we create you know, our own rhythm and pace separate from the, the dialogue sequences. But it's that combination of elements, I think, that leads to an unexpected um, energy that surprises you in different ways. It's not just repeated fast pace because it's all about pace and, and we're, you know, focusing on that right now, but it's also the silence and the pauses. And we can talk about that separately. It's the, the looks and the reactions from characters. When this movie settles down and is quiet, we really succeed. That's where we hit and the home. That's run. what I wanted to get to. And um, uh, listen, Alan is is rightly commended and lauded for uh, for the pace, for the fantastic job uh, uh, with the riots, uh, uh, for the energy. But um, so often uh, during that, I think it was an eighteen or twenty week uh, post period editing period. So often. Um, I'd look at a scene, uh, a scene in the courtroom, a scene in the conspiracy uh, office. Uh, I'd look at a scene where I felt like we did everything right. Um, uh, you know, it's a terrific performance from Eddie. It's a terrific performance uh, uh, from Rylance. We we lit it right. Um, 
why isn't it working? Uh, why isn't it landing? Why aren't I feeling anything um, uh, at the end of the scene? Uh, and I would kind of leave the editing room with my head down. Um, and uh, I'd come in the next day, and Alan, who you know had barely been home, uh, I kind of went home to sleep for a couple of hours and came back, would just say, let me show you something, uh, uh, what I did here. It was just a matter of uh, getting a reaction shot, adding a beat before we cut to uh, uh, something, and suddenly the scene was everything you wanted it to be. Wow. Wow. It, it's often said that if something is wrong, I, I've heard other filmmakers talk about this, if something is wrong in a movie, in a particular instance, usually the problem is occurring moments before. Is, do, do both of you agree with that? Or have uh, you that often that's the case. And it can be moments before, or it can be quite a bit earlier. It can be in the very beginning, as is often said, something problem in the first act can you know, bite you later. And you may not realize that the problem surfaces whenever it does surface, but you need to retrace and see where did you lose that connection? Where did something go off the rails? It wasn't set up properly or missed a moment. Uh, Aaron, I don't know if you want to add. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just, in terms of screenwriting, I can tell you that more often than not, uh, if if the third act isn't working, the problems Mm -hmm. of the first act. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, That you paid off something that you didn't properly set up. And Aaron, no. No, go ahead. I was just going to thank Aaron for allowing me to go home and sleep at night, which is which was fine. He did give me a few hours off. No, I, to comment on that, I we you were so uh, <laughs> to me showing you anything new at any point, which was really great. You would always say, "What do you got? What do you got?" And uh, I was relentless as I tend to be on looking for something better. What did we miss? Is there a different way to? If I'm watching it at night alone, you know, what do I find missing from the scene? So you offer that. Uh, encouragement in the sense that you're open and welcome these changes and you respect the process of editing in a way I, that I, uh, I, can't I certainly you. do respect the process of editing. And I will say though that uh, Alan is a mean boss um, uh, because I would, when, when we'd have good days in the editing room, oh, yeah. there, there are many more good days than, uh, uh, than bad days. Um, I would tell Alan to tell the team right. and the team, because we didn't have a lot of money, right. we're a bunch of kids a couple of years out of NYU and USC. Right. Um, uh, you know what? I would, it would be a Friday. It would be four o'clock or, or something. And I say, send them home. Uh, I'll let them start their weekend. This is great work. Um, uh, this is fantastic work. Not a chance. Um, Alan would keep them there until... Even if I said to go home, they wanted to stay. I tell you, the crew, the team we had together, Christine, Brandon, and Caitlin, were so enthusiastic and excited to be working on this project, as was I, that uh, we love being there every minute. And it's what it takes to get it done. And we value that. And you give us the time. And as I was saying, respecting the process is different than respecting the work. You can trash the work and tell me I'm way off base and it's terrible. And I, I messed up and I have to start over and that's fine. But respecting the process is the key because you would allow me time. You'd go away and say, when are you ready to show me something? It wasn't like you had to see anything right away. You would want me to either solve. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's has anyone, Alan, um, has a director, a director ever looked at your first assembly? Uh, and said, you got it all wrong. We have to start over. 
Well, I don't think they've gone that far. Nor have they threatened <laughs> to kill themselves, which is the normal, uh, you know. Well, that's a, that is a normal reaction. No, no, no. Um, and, and the re- no, you're not, thank, you're not okay. reacting okay. to the editor's work. You're I, reacting I, to your I, own. I, I think I get what you're saying there. No, thank you. And there's, it's always a nerve-wracking situation for an editor to present a first cut. In fact, it's, you know, torture for us and it's torture for you. Um, yeah. So uh, I was, you know, waiting to hear your thoughts. And I was very relieved when you only, when you said I only missed a few things and we had a lot of work to do, but we were in great shape. And in fact, you included me on an email to the, your colleagues and team saying, we're yeah. in great shape. We'll start tomorrow. We've got a lot to do, but you know, very excited. So. And the, yeah. but Alan's work didn't begin, uh, you know, began well before we, we wrapped photography. He is uh, uh, cutting together footage as we go. And he, he'll call and say, listen, you're back in the courtroom tomorrow. When you're there, get a shot of the jury uh, a looking camera left. Um, uh, just only, get a shot of that. You know, we, it only happened a few that. times, but it, it, it's a very key part of the process. It's very important. And on this film, there was a challenge for all of us because there was not a lot of time or money and you weren't in locations that long and scenes and actors were rapping. So it was up to me to do the best I could to evaluate all the footage and see if there might be something else we should get or try to get. And that's, yeah. uh, uh, you know, something we work hard at. Were you assembling, were you editing the movie during the pandemic? Ah, that, yes, we were finishing the director's cut at that point. So we broke down the editing rooms and moved to our houses to work remotely. And we did all of the fine cutting and the locking of picture as well as all the post sound and music and color timing, all the different aspects of finishing the film remotely and the visual effects. So Aaron and I and the team, various you know, members of the different departments would get on Zoom calls and uh, work remotely to, to see it through, including doing a sound mix and during the pandemic and uh, color timing. It worked remarkably well. I mean, I, I don't wanna make a habit out of it, but no. um, uh, we, we did, we, we finished picture um, of Alan just sending me things and me giving him notes and, uh, and sending it back. Sound, uh, we did have to get, there were a few days uh, uh, we had to get together uh, on a mixing stage at Warner Brothers, but under the strictest, strictest COVID protocols. And the score, which was a full orchestral score. Daniel uh, Pemberton. Was, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Great. Uh, who did Molly's Game and Steve Jobs and uh, uh, things I didn't write to. Um, he recorded the score at Abbey Road in London uh, about two or three musicians at a time. That, w- the reason why I was asking about the pandemic was because was the film tested? Because no. uh, it didn't bother Aaron at all. In fact, we. <laughs> yeah, I think he was secretly or maybe not so secretly happy that we didn't go through that process. In fact, yeah. we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have screenings or a lot of feedback. Aaron usually shares the film with some people, this one probably less. He had been on with this script for so many years and we had a very tight, small team that uh, stayed with this film and we didn't open it up and show people. It's true. Uh, not only was there no preview uh, for the film, the film, except for uh, Netflix did a drive-in premiere uh, in the parking lot of the Rose Bowl. That was really, uh, it was a great night. It really was a great night. But that, other than that, the film has never played to an audience uh, ever. Wow. Uh, wow. And that, that's what I miss terribly. And I am, what I'm clinging to uh, is the belief that 
we all miss being part uh, of an audience, uh, that that experience of uh, that shared experience, when the lights come down, you're with a group of strangers and everyone's laughing at the same time, being silent at the same time, gasping, crying, letting the end of the film reverberate uh, at the same time, that experience is not replaceable. And that once it's safe, we're all gonna wanna do that again. I remember being at the premiere for Newsroom at the Arclight Cinema in the, in the, in the, main, in the main rotunda, uh, cinema and we roared we it was it was amazing amazing at the end it was electric it really is wonderful to see it with a crowd there's nothing like an audience so we did have cars honking at the rose bowl which was (laughs) we did was pretty great at certain key moments including the ending but yeah uh, let me listen netflix knows how to do pandemics (laughs) (laughs) what um what was left on the floor what darling Ah. Did you have to cut and leave on the floor? Any particular sequences? Very little, Aaron. You can talk about anything, but I mean, literally, it's words and lines. You know, so. it is um, uh, a very little. Uh, you know, it, I, I got to write the screenplay a lot uh, over fourteen years, twenty or twenty-five drafts. So there was some uh, that kind of editing done then, uh, but. Mostly, in a couple of scenes, uh, uh, you know, you just try the experiment of cutting the last line of the scene, mm-hmm. um, and oftentimes you—it's a eureka uh, moment, including uh, one we did at the very last minute because you thought we take had taken it out of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You say, didn't we take that line out? And we which tried remind it. Remind me. Um, oh, 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 yeah. We, in, um, in the in attorney Mitchell's general office. Mitchell's office. Yeah, and. Uh, we did, we that had, was the weirdest thing because I could have sworn we took the line out and we hadn't. And because we, we didn't, did. <laughs> we didn't have those preview screenings. You see, if we had those preview screenings, you would have you would have seen it many times. But you if we had that. those preview screenings, we would have been sent in nineteen right. different directions from nineteen different notes of they they don't quite like this person enough. They don't quite you know. You're right. We were better off in this case without them. But there so. was there was that line. There were a few other lines and words from Kunstler, but no wholesale scenes, Anthony. And normally that is the case. You're losing scenes or moments or beats or even characters, but none of that happened in this film. It was really the script is, is the final film. In fact, we added something instead of at the very end, the Fred Hampton um, stills late in the game. Uh, oh, the, that, that's right. Yeah. The crime scene um, uh, photos. The, the crime of, scene photos of his murder. added. Uh, that's the very, very end of very end of post. Well, there was yeah. a version that had that in it a long time ago, but yeah, the murder was there. Uh, Fred Hampton. Sure. Oh, well, in the script, there was yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, there was, there was a, a scene of the murder of Fred Hampton earlier, which version. I but we never shot it. No, I, I no. cut it. Right. Uh, there were two reasons I cut it. Yeah, yeah. it's not yeah. really important. Yeah. Um, however, I am glad that Judas and the Black Messiah is coming out, and we'll be telling that story. Yeah. Yes, and I, I saw that movie, and it's a and I, I this was like the third time that I saw your movie uh, last night, and I I had seen uh, Judas and the Black Messiah like a week ago, and so it's it's a nice it's a nice double feature. Uh, really- it is because those two stories obviously rub up against yeah. each other. Um, can you talk about? Can both of you talk about the dynamic of the General Clark scene when we first meet Michael Keaton's character? It's just really interesting. Uh, it's just you've got two guys in the back of the room. You got the two guys up. You've got you got Tom Hayden standing at the side of the door. Uh, you've got the you've got um, Kunstler 
and the other lawyer sitting in, in, in it was just it's just the setup of it uh and 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 the pacing of it can you talk about that scene more uh, it was just a really wonderful scene well, when we first again, meet. I'm going to pass it off okay. to, to, to Alan because uh, that's a great example of, uh, of an editor doing, um, you know, working, take, uh, taking small turns of the screw that make all the difference. Because, um, you know, what you want to make sure you're landing uh, in that scene, you want to land everything in that scene, but you got to make sure you're landing uh, is the is Keaton saying found it uh, at the end, right? To Hayden, who has said, you got to find some courage now. You got to find some courage. Um, uh, and uh, Keaton says, found it. And that's just a matter of when we're cutting to who and how long we're staying there. And it's just a matter of Alan at his chemistry set. Uh, uh, you know, but thank you. Anthony is hitting on something too, though. That kind of scene is difficult and it's awkward and it was a real challenge to cut. And it's interesting you point that one out. And it's because of where people are in the room. And Aaron does this. He has people talking in rooms and they can be standing, they can be sitting and people behind. So even though you know where everybody is in that room, you couldn't just cut to any shot at any time. Uh, so Anthony, you're right. The challenges of that scene were partly due to the coverage and the geographic orientation of each of the characters. Um, but you really raised the stakes in that. Thank you. We were just very deliberate in our choices and also in, in mining the best performances. And obviously we had a great script, but also it's these brilliant actors and the great performances they gave. Before we go, uh, Aaron, yes. uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, how is that coming back post-pandemic? Is Ed Harris going to be in it? Um, what can you gonna tell us? going to be back us? in the fall. Uh, um obviously it's been very tough. Uh, uh, you know, we shut down like everyone else in March. We'd been running for 17 months without playing to an empty seat. Um, uh, a, an announcement will be made about the cast. Um, uh, it's, it'll be a pretty cool announcement uh, about the cast that's coming back, but we will be back uh, in early October. And then will there be a national tour? There will be a national tour and, even before we open on Broadway in June, we'll open in London on the West End. Okay, great. Um, well, I cannot thank you both uh, enough for, uh, for joining me today. Um, I could speak with you for another two hours. Uh, that, that's very kind of you. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.